0: Welcome back, I'm Kim Bailey, she's Juliana Osborne and this is Insight Exec. Today we're continuing our discussion with John Alford and we're looking at some of the skills that he developed early in his career that have carried through to the present day. We're also going to talk with him about the differences between a transaction business and a service business when you're in the same industry.
1: So starting off in financial planning was a little bit different. The financial planning world was full of uh, probably guys that worked on the life insurance side and I felt that bringing a stockbroking element to financial planning added a uh, completely different dimension. The financial planning industry back in the 1990s was, or well, 1990, 91 was uh, still quite a fledgling industry. The managed funds that were on offer were quite rudimentary. And as I alluded to, the life insurance guys were quite committed to their clients and everything. They probably were less sophisticated than the industry um, required. That has definitely changed over the, the last 30 years. If, if I have to say what is the biggest change in the 30 years, it, it is definitely the sophistication of the advisors. However, starting off as a uh, financial planner without any clients was quite a daunting task. I had no idea where to start. I had a, I had a desk, I had a phone and not much else. The guy's desk I took over I had left to go to another place and my first appointment was a client that was coming to see him and he hadn't told her that he'd left. <laughs> Tom and Gwyneth came in, and they became my first ever financial planning clients, and uh, they are still clients to today. It's been a thirty-year relationship with those clients. More importantly, to start off and get clients was not easy. I was not in any way, shape, or form interested in cold calling. That to me was unprofessional, and I was not used to having to cold call people, so I never did. What I did was I, there were several things I did. First of all, I double O F Uh, was a friendly society and had lots of members and for those who don't know what a friendly society uh, was back then, friendly societies were built in the uh, 1800s to support um, predominantly farmers and people on the land in their retirement before the age pensions were brought into place. As you can imagine, a farmer would run his farms for his life and get to a point where he couldn't actually physically uh, do it any longer and Yeah, back through the 1800s and the 1900s, uh, there was no fallback for him from, from an income point of view. And the friendly societies were there to support them. So my first way to obtain clients was to write to the members of IWF friendly society. They also ran health, health funds and explain my position and offer my services as an advisor to, to the members of IWF. Another option for me was I bought the book the, the shared lists, which was public information and can be purchased of Bundaberg Sugar when CSR took over Bundaberg Sugar. And again, I wrote to all the, uh, the Bundaberg Sugar investors and saying, well, I'm a little bit different than everybody who's offering to sell your shares. I can take you further and and invest in managed funds as well as shares, giving you options and help you with your superannuation planning and so forth. So that worked to a small degree. As a firm, then has built a relationship with Railways and Transport Health Fund, uh, given our connection with IWF and and sister companies. Soon after that, I spent my time wandering around the railway yards of of Sydney, and well, not of Sydney, actually, of, of New South Wales, and providing uh, redundancy seminars for all the staff that was being made redundant in those uh, 1990s. That was probably my first big kickoff in in building my my client base. Given that a lot of the railway workers were involved at the state super, I did a course on state super, which meant that I was a qualified advisor to the state superannuation system. And that actually led me to doing a course on to qualify as an advisor to the Commonwealth superannuation system. Which is where I met Fulyana. Was that 1994 Fulyana for memory? Yeah, um, about yep. right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Through the 90s, redundancies were prevalent. The rules were complicated. Everybody needed advice. Uh, simple as that to know which was the best structure and best strategy for themselves. And given that I was fully trained up on the uh, the government superannuation systems. I was actually brought in to do seminars in all sorts of different government organisations. Department of Administrative Services was one. Department of Veteran Affairs was another. Australian Defence Industries was another. And so the list goes on. By providing these seminars and, and just providing an education to people, that built my uh, client base. So I'd gone from nothing in 1991, and I think it was by 1995, or it might have been 94, 95, the firm was ticking along quite nicely. I should step back a little bit. I had been working in the city in 1991 for IWF and Winchken Carson Financial Planning. Two of my old cronies from the trading floor, they wanted to set up a financial planning firm. So they have at least a little office in Manly. And given that I knew them, um, I saw that as a uh, opportunity to move to Manly and move out of the city. And so we opened up Manly Financial Planning into different guys in October, 1992. So October will be 30 years in Manly and thirty years in this building been in different offices throughout the building over the years, but still the same building for thirty years i can 't tell you how how wonderful it is is working out of Manly as opposed to the city and it 's just a magical place to work i don 't know what you would have to offer me to go back to uh, to, to the rat race
0: <laughs> just if we go look at at your whole career you, you really have gone through big changes but that, that were brought about with an immediacy that wouldn't allow you to adjust yourself to thinking about oh well, this is going to be a change this is this this is that it was all just from the sounds of it one excitement after the next do you deal with change well like on a personal level obviously work-wise you know you just you do what you have to do as we all do but do you see that there's been change or, or was it just so these things happen and I just move on to the next thing. You don't you don't sort of categorise change as change?
1: I guess my first reaction to any change is usually a negative, but I then have to stop myself and sit down and, and I work through to the positive. So, for example, back in the early days, Paul Keating used to change uh, superannuation law every month on average. We had to learn that every month. So at the time, bloody hell, what's he done now? Yeah. Then I started thinking, okay, how can I take advantage of it? And, and the same used to come from the, the budget. I used to go to the, the budget briefings and we would find out about all the changes. And then instantly go back to the office and sit down and, and work out, how can I make these changes become an advantage? So like most people, change it, I find is, is a negative, but I do then change from work into the, into the positive. But there, it has to be a specific thought to do that.
0: It's interesting because if I look at the way you've talked to us about working on the trading floor and then moving on to other things, that trading floor experience gave you your hearing advantage <laughs> in crowd situations. Do you think perhaps that, that the excitement, the volatility, the activity that happened on the trading floor, and then that was essentially change every 30 seconds, yes, um, has has that given you some sort of inbuilt way of thinking, okay, it's changed, that's no good, but we've all got to move on. You know, it's a, an immediacy thing.
1: Yeah, I, I believe so, because if something changed and, and therefore created a mistake for yourself on that trading floor, you had to correct that really fast. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it would cost a lot of money. Yeah, Our salary and our bonuses and our job relied on you not losing a whole pile of money so i think you're absolutely right and i think that's probably the the foundation for that change it'd be nice not to make mistakes but we all do and uh, the secret was to fix it as soon as possible
0: and i think that that's probably a big lesson for lots of people to learn across the board in any industry is that yes mistakes happen but you need to fix them you need to just move on
2: that's great the other thing is throughout this podcast you give us millions of examples of how resilient you are that is a great thing to remember that we all got something there that we could use. Like as a young man, you were really walking on water at a very, very young age. And then you journey and you do things and you wage double and double again. Then you find yourself in a position where you haven't got a client. You've got an empty book and you had to start from there. And in a sense, that was then you figured out how to do that and how successful it went from there. Then the GFC and so on and so forth and how you kept recovering. I think this is fantastic for our listeners and ourselves in that. So no matter how tough it is, you will find a way if you continuously remind yourself you've got it and use the things around you to make it happen.
1: I agree, and and I think it comes back to Kim's question about change. We live in an ever-changing environment. Don't get caught up in the change as being a negative, even if at first you can't see the positive. And quite often the change is not a positive. Don't get morose about it. Yes. Work with that change for an outcome which will be a positive in the long run.
0: Is there anything else that you think is a a skill that's travelled with you through all of this time that you've picked up at that early stage?
1: I guess it's not so much skill. It's probably more lessons is probably a better way of putting yeah. it. The, the lessons that we learned on the trading floor were things like do not stand in front of the market was one of our lessons. So what that means is if you think you're right, but the market's doing the opposite, don't sit there on your, stand there on your lows either buying a stock or selling stock when everybody is doing the opposite. You have to stop and work out. If someone argues with you or someone tells you that you're wrong or has a different opinion or you're in a debate what it does is make you take a step back and look at it from their perspective mm. and make sure that your idea and, and that your belief it makes mm. you stop and think before you keep going with your strategy with your plan with your idea with your argument because we all get caught up in our own minds of believing believe too much in ourselves and sometimes we are wrong and sometimes you need to adjust but just take us a moment depending on what it is, of course, but take a moment and take a breath, do a little bit of research, make sure that you are right before you continue with your strategy. You might not be.
0: You talked about going from being in a transaction industry to being in a service industry. You prefer one over the other?
1: Absolutely. I prefer service over transaction. The stockbroking community, which I was originally involved in, should never have let financial planning industry start. Stockbroking industry has always been transaction-based. They make money on on the transactions, if you like. The financial planning industry makes money on servicing. I'm a great believer in the uh, on the service industry as opposed to a transactional, because sometimes the best thing is not to do anything, especially in in market downturns and market crashes and everything else like that. I mean, one of the the, the most important things we do is hold people's hands and make them not do rash things. So I mean, it's yeah, bleedingly obviously that you. You, you don't sell an asset when it's down. You sell an asset when it's high and buy it when it's down. But to get that human element or that human thought process into buying something when the press and, and or the media is, is telling you we're all going to die and the world, the banking system's going to end and everything, I mean, that's the time to buy. You could have bought Commonwealth Bank at $26 in um, 2009 could have bought as much as you liked at $26. You could have bought VHP at $20, for example. These just very simple. could have bought CSL at $20 10, 15 years ago, or 15, 20 years ago. The the point I'm trying to get at is when everyone else is telling you it's – and this is what I'm talking about, don't stand in front of the markets. So what what you've got to say is, okay, so the market's falling. I like to see it start to rise before I buy. I don't want to try and get the bottoms, and I don't want to try and sell at the tops. But I want to see the direction yeah. be established before I make that decision. I don't want to buy in something really high. And, and I suppose this uh, Bitcoin is a is a classic example. I'll be totally honest, I don't quite get it all. I see it as being a currency for the internet. I see that that is its, its biggest purpose. But I can't put a value on it. So therefore, I don't know whether I'm buying or selling at a high point or a low point. So therefore, I can't bring myself to buy any. Mm. I never know when to buy yeah. <laughs> um, work with people, and I know I've gone off topic there, but uh, <laughs> off the question. <laughs>
0: well, i only mean more questions. Do you think there's value in understanding a transactional business before you move into a service business, if it's in the same arena?
1: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? The whole world's moving to more service-orientated mm. um, mm. than, than transactional. There's very few transactional businesses left, and of course the old salesman, I guess, has is, is changed completely in that, whether, whether industry, if you're talking about used cars or you're talking about pharmaceutical goods or life insurance, probably the last main transactional business is, is a real estate agent. He gets paid on, on per transaction. So is it important to understand that? I don't think it is. You can get by without understanding the transaction business, but I do think understanding a service industry and having models to make sure that your service is up to speed and it is what people want, but most importantly, what people need. Understanding that is, is critical to, uh, to a service industry.
0: Time to take a break in our discussion with John Orford. Join us for part three of our, this discussion. But for now, I'm Kim Bailey. She's Juliana Osborne, and this is Inside Exec.